those space people a podcast series of casual cosmic conversations with people working on exciting space projects today we have claudia kessler who is the founder of astronautin which is a non-profit that aims to bring the first german woman to space and claudia has a background in aerospace engineering and also holds an mba and she is currently based in berlin home sweet home in germany welcome to the podcast claudia Welcome, Dashana, and thanks for having me. So, before you founded the Astronautin, Claudia, uh, you worked for nearly 15 years with Etchy Space, which is a recruitment company for space agencies and also the space industry across Europe. I'm really curious about your key learnings from this experience. Could you perhaps talk about that? Yeah, I left my time as a manager of a small, medium-sized company. I was able to grow it from 30 to over 200 employees, which was a really a very nice challenge. And I had the freedom to run the company after the values that are important for me. And for me, that is freedom for everybody who works there to give them as much room as possible uh, to grow and to work um, for themselves, to give them a lot of responsibility and not to have a too strong hierarchy organization, but really have um, the possibility that everybody can contact everyone, can interact with everyone, and can find the place where he or she can work best for herself and grow for herself and for the company. That's interesting. So I'm assuming that you saw a shortage of women in STEM fields when you were working there and realized that they needed an extra push. So I'm assuming that is why you founded Astronautin. When I was working at HG Space, I founded Women in Aerospace Europe, first of all. And that was not so much because I thought women needed an extra push or extra um, whatever. It was more like I found that there are actually much more women out there working in the space industry than you realize because we don't know each other. And so the idea by founding Women in Aerospace was really to build a network of women so that they know each other, they can support each other, they can help each other, and they can become more visible with that. And out of that combination of AG Space, the recruitment company on the one side, and Women in Aerospace on the other side, actually came out the need on my side to bring the first German woman into space. Because Germany is the country with the most astronauts in Europe. We have 11 male astronauts, 11 German men have been to space, but no German woman has been to space. And since it was my childhood dream as well to become an astronaut, I thought I'm now more than 50 years old and still no German woman has been to space. I need to do something about it. Okay. In the latest call for astronauts, right, ESA has repeatedly encouraged women candidates to apply. So probably that means when everything else is equal, they would prefer a female candidate over a male candidate. So is this enough to bridge the gender gap that you're talking about in astronauts? First of all, talking about the ESA call, there is a problem because in saying they have encouraged women to apply, but not in the selection criteria. It's still very biased because the selection criteria have been made by men and they have looked at them and they said, when I asked them, they said, We decide that they are very good, but they do not uh, foresee extra points, let's say, for any social activity that you do as a woman, like taking care of your kids, of your parents, homeschooling, whatever. 
but they do give extra points if you have been on an expedition or if you have been a fireman or a fire or a rescue helper, um, which is traditionally a more male activity than a female activity. So there's still an imbalance in the selection criteria that I see. So let's wait and see how the selection for ESA will work. I hope, from my point of view, ESA does have six active astronauts right now, even seven, when you count Matthias Maurer. And from my point of view, they should recruit six women now so that they would have an equal um, balance in the astronaut corps. Do you think there should be a fundamental change in the in the space policy at the policy level at ESA to bridge this gender gap and to be more sensitive towards encouraging more women like you just spoke? I think there should be, like in the European Union, where they try to achieve a 50-50 percentage of women in all positions, and they have that especially in their board of directors represented. And the same should be due for all European organizations, which is one of. But ESA has 11 directors with one woman. So this is already where it all starts. And, and then if you go down on the next management level, again, I don't know the percentage right now, but it's definitely not 50%. And even so, there are a lot of women working on the ground level, on the working level at ESA. So I think it needs a fundamental um, political change there to really actively change that actively, um, recruit more directors, first of all, and then also more female astronauts, more women on all levels. Because up to now, they're always using the argument that there are not enough women out there, but that's not true anymore. That is speaking about the gender gap and speaking about whether astronaut training should be handed over to the industry and not be done by ESA. Is, is that what you also believe in? Yeah, we as astronauts in GmbH, we built an astronaut training for the two female astronauts for Germany that we selected, first of all, for more than 400 candidates. And we were using the same criteria ESA did in that time. We just applied them a bit differently. But we did the same psychological and medical selection process with DLR as ESA has done. The astronaut training should be privatized like most of the things it's something that industry can do very well, and you can do it at much lower cost as an agency can do. Of course, for some things, you need an infrastructure like a diving facility or things like that, which is very expensive if you run it purely commercially. But still, there are private diving facilities around in, in Europe, like in France with COMEX or in the UK being built with Blue Abyss. And for sure, they will be offered to the agency as astronaut training facilities as well. So I think especially when an agency only has six astronauts, it's quite an effort to keep yeah, everything in-house all the time, whereas not contracting it out to industry and let them use it also for commercial purposes. Okay. I'd like to dive into this a little bit more. Where exactly do you think would be the biggest cost savings when astronaut training is done by the industry instead of the space agency? Is it in terms of personal uh, workforce or in terms of operations? Or It's always a, a question of workforce and operations. And of course, astronauts as such, as I said, if ESA only has a core of six astronauts and they can only fly one per year, you have to give them other tasks. And at the same time, you have to keep their training level high. So that's a balance, of course. What ESA offers now is to reserve astronauts, which from my point of view is a very good system. 
because these people stay in their jobs in industry and science. And at the same time, they will be trained um, as astronauts, but they will not become ESA employees. They will stay in their jobs and can be called for a flight if that is necessary. And that's, again, if you don't have a big astronaut corps like NASA has, I think that's a very reasonable way to have more astronauts and to keep the cost at a decent level. The way ESA does astronaut training right now, is it also similar to how NASA does it? Because NASA also trains their own astronauts. And, but when we look at these, uh, the recent SpaceX private crewed mission, I think SpaceX is training these private individuals and not NASA. Yes, SpaceX is training them in the NASA facilities. So uh, with NASA, it's different because they have this big uh, mock-up of the space station. ESA has a mock-up of the ISS Columbus module. And of course, they have a lot of training software there as well, which is very costly. Again, if we come back to private training, we would have to see how to privatize these things. Um, NASA has the facilities. The training is conducted by contracting companies. So it's not conducted by NASA staff. It's conducted by a company. I don't know who has the contract at the moment because they reopen this contract from time to time. But uh, part of the SpaceX crew, part of the Axiom Owners had that contract in the past, at least. And so it's always been done by industrial astronaut trainers in the NASA facility. And so Axiom is using the NASA facilities as well for their training, but they will also be building some private training facilities besides that. And of course, they are training in the SpaceX capsule for the launch. So I think astronaut training will change a lot with more spaceflight participants because you will have more people all over the world that will want to be trained in different places. And then you'll have to um, have kind of a modular training like we did with astronaut and we had some training here and some training there. And um, they were working in their normal jobs, in their day jobs during that time as well. And then they took some time off to train, for example, the diving training or the centrifuge training or those trainings that really are time intensive. Okay, that's very interesting. And what is ESA's perspective towards all this, the whole astronaut training getting privatized and distributed across the world? Are they ready for it? Are they expecting it? Or what are their perceptions? What is their I guess that's something you would have to ask Isa and not myself, but <laughs> from my point of view, they're far away from that. They will keep it in-house and do it at the European Astronaut Center as they have done it in the past. Okay, that's interesting. Then they, I'm, I'm assuming they, might, they are not really very pleased with astronaut in, in that case. Yeah, they see it from a different point of view. Let's say they're not open for any commercial activities yet, which I think it's a pity because, yeah. As I said before, we could do things, of course, at a different pricing level. And in different pricing level, can you give a, a ballpark estimate in what percentage reduction of the cost? Mm, well, that's hard to say because I don't know the overall training at ESA, the cost on the ESA side, and which is harder to calculate than our training was to calculate. So I don't think that I can do that out of the blue. 
Okay, sure, of course. Yeah. May I ask how much it costs to train one astronaut at uh, the Astronautin? No, you cannot because we had a lot of in-kind contributions which we did not calculate. You cannot really calculate it because we didn't count our time that I spent, for example, half a year calling the Bundeswehr to get access to their facilities. In the end, they gave it to us for free. But as I said, I didn't count my time um, that it took me to get it for free and things like that. So you can't really calculate a price. And up to now, no one has asked me for a price. If India comes and wants me to train your their astronauts or Australia or whoever who has not flown astronauts, especially females once yet, then I can make a calculation for the whole package, but I would have to sit down and really go. So speaking of the cost, right, for the latest SpaceX commercial crew mission, there is a billionaire businessman, American billionaire businessman, who sponsored about five private astronauts. Do you see something like this happening in Europe in some time in the future? Unfortunately not, no. No. I think we don't have these type of pioneers in Europe. It's probably a mentality thing. I don't know. But I haven't seen anything like this in Europe in the past, so I don't expect it to happen suddenly. In the case of the ISS getting commercialized, whenever that would be, <laughs> How do you think the astronaut program of ESA would get affected? I don't think that it would get affected at all if NASA commercializes the ISS more. NASA just has raised the prices for commercial astronauts for and for commercial payloads as well. So I don't think that there will be a rush to ISS. One launch still costs uh, something between 150 and 200 million euros or dollars, which is not something you and I have in our pockets. There won't be thousands or hundreds um, of people flying to ISS. If there's one commercial crew per year, this will be a lot for now. It may change in the future when NASA goes back to the moon and they really hand over ISS to Axiom or to another um, total private operator. But that will not happen before 2030, I think. At least that's what I think they agreed to run the space station until then. In the next uh, 10 years, I don't see a rush to ISS. Okay, that's interesting. So um, assuming that private operation of a space station or all the astronaut training is going to be cheaper than when compared to it is uh, done by space agencies, assuming this, do you think once the ISS, okay, also assuming that the ISS would get, let's say, commercialized in two decades, not the next 10 years, but two decades, do you think space agencies would have more cash then and send more astronauts to the ISS or would they prefer to spend that money somewhere else or how do you think the whole perception of having crewed missions would be? My vision for that is that lower orbit would be run more commercial by companies like Axiom and SpaceX and others um, who are running and I don't think that ISS will exist for another 20 years because it's going to be very old. And outdated, so I think you'll have to start new, renewing some modules, like the Russians just added another module and probably will shut down one of the older ones at some point in time, because they're like more than 20 years old already. And, but going back to your question is, I see ISS orbit run by commercial companies, not only ISS, but hopefully some other commercial stations and the space agency from my point of view, should concentrate on the more visionary, on the big projects, really to build 
stations on the moon to fly humans to Mars and to explore the universe further. Claudia, so you're currently training two women astronauts at the Astronautian. And what challenges have you faced? Can you talk about your journey in from the beginning, from when you started Astronautian to getting to this point? And what challenges do you see ahead in getting in going to the next step of actually launching them into the only big challenge we always had and have is the financing. This was our challenge from the beginning that in Europe or especially in Germany to privately select and then train an astronaut is um, something that is not uh, yeah, established. It's very new. It's never been done before. And many people always told me that I cannot do it because it's not been done before. So I did it anyway. And we were always able to raise money by crowdfunding, by donations, by sponsorships, and by a lot of public speaking contracts so that we could finance always the next training step. But of course, now the biggest challenge ahead is the ticket to space, which costs us $50 million. And we need to persuade the German government that after 11 government-paid flights to ISS for German men, they should also pay the flight cost for the first German woman to ISS. It's also very interesting that you say the biggest challenge is funding and not really the paperwork. So I'm assuming on the the bureaucracy, all the all the paperwork front, it's has it been quite smooth for you? Yeah, since we were a privately organized company, we didn't have a lot of paperwork to do. There, there was no agent, space agency involved, so we didn't have to do paperwork. It was done after we have an astronaut trainer from ESA on board who is um, in our team who is retired, and he helped us to build the astronaut training, and the rest was organizational work and trying to get the funding for it. The paperwork was, yeah. So the biggest motivation or the biggest intention behind having, uh, actually having human spaceflight missions is eventually we want to be able to populate the moon or the Mars and have sustained, uh, sustained, uh, colon- sustained human presence on these off Earth, either in orbit or on other planets. So what is, what is your vision towards this? How many years would you give? Do you think we're going to have a self-sustaining colony or occupant? I wouldn't say no. occupying. Occupy is not really a very <laughs> happy word. Let's say human, sustained human presence outside of Earth. What timeline would you give? 50 years, 100 years? Well, out of the astronaut training, we developed uh, management trainings, especially with this focus on women empowerment trainings for women. And one training that we developed is a Mars team experience. So there are a crew of uh, 12 people, um, eight people lands on Mars, four people are in the crown center. And we timed our, our Mars landing for summer 20. This is my horizon. My vision is before the end of the, yeah, before the beginning of 2040, we would land humans on Mars and start our first human presence on Mars. That's super cool. And do, do you read any space science fiction or, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, like expands, there's a lot of TV series lately about sustained human colonies and uh, presence. Sorry, again, colony is not a great word. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> sustained human <No>. presence. <laughs> But it's it's so sad, right? Like even if we've been all these words have been so normalized. Human presence on Mars, let's call it. Yeah. No, I don't. I did watch uh, this away on Netflix. Mm-hmm. I was very frustrated by the stereotypes. It was 
very stereotyped. They tried to have a female commander, but in the end, she was so sorry about her her husband and her child and leaving her child behind that I thought, okay, no, that's not a good role model. And I don't read science fictions or anything alike because it just frustrates me too much that we're not there. I do, I want to be there. I'm confronted with reality and that's why I cannot read science fiction. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. I also get quite frustrated a lot of times. Even if there's, first of all, there's very few female leads in, in this narrative. And even every time there is a female lead in the narrative, they somehow they feel the need to include all her you know emotional bondings to her family and this is not really done with every male lead so it's the same with proxima we're going to see that on the first of um, september in berlin with a, a whole group of people to talk about it it's the same it's a great film about a great female astronaut but in the end it's all the family problems that stand in the yeah. front. <laughs> and as you say it's never the male story like that of course, men have families, and the men have a family, and there's a woman somewhere in the background that always takes care of the who, who, who put the kids away thing. Yeah, yeah, because always in these kind of representations, there's always the subtext that the primary duty of the woman is with the family, and that is a very dangerous thing to better not have a female lead than have one with this kind of a subtext. Exactly. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. But yeah, hopefully with the amazing network that you've created, Women Narrowspace, of which I'm also a part of and I've benefited like immensely being part of it. Hopefully we get more women into making these movies so we can get rid of these stereotypes. Yeah. Speaking of women in aerospace, it's a fantastic network because women across the world, you know, we don't have these specialized networks. And so a lot of times, so earlier I was speaking to one of my friends, female friends, in the Indian the space agency, which I've previously worked with. And she told me that she would always, in the first two or three years of her working at the space agency, she would be the last person to know of any changes, anything that's happening around her, like even technically, while all her peers who joined with her, the same age as her, would get the information first because they were men. So it's quite universal. We don't have our channels. Women don't have these the ways of getting information and networking. So that way, I think Via Worldwide is, is doing a fantastic job. But speaking of diversity, it seems diversity is understood or focused on differently at different parts of the world. It seems like mostly when we talk about diversity in Europe, we usually talk about men and women. So it's quite binary. But then sometimes in, in the U.S., diversity means it's uh, slightly larger. I have a feeling, at least when we look at popular media, right? So they talk a lot about LGBTQ and it's slightly larger. And if we zoom out a little further, it's about racial diversity, you know, inclusion of people, including people from across all walks of the world, all geographies, all parts. How do you think... We can all have, like, given that we all have different interpretations and of diversity, how do you think we can, you know, all be on the same page eventually? For me, diversity is always the big picture. It's everybody. I think for me, the best way to be all on the same page is to fly as many people as possible into space and make them realize that we only have one home planet and we're all, we're not even 
diversity is something good because the more diverse people you have in whatever group, is it a space mission or a project on Earth, the more different views you have and the more broader you can solve. I think in Germany, we most of the people that I know who are active in creating diversity in companies or educating companies in diversity, they see it from the total point of view that you described also for the US, the racial as well as the LBGQ as well as the, the gender diversity. And I think that's how it has to be seen. It cannot be focused on just uh, the man-woman uh, thing. It has to see the include everybody perspective. Nevertheless, sometimes you have to start somewhere. And then if you have to start somewhere, and this is again in Germany, you have a lot of companies, again, smaller companies that sometimes are purely male. I've came across companies that do not have anybody else than white men working for them. And of course, there you start with Besides the secretary, most of the time, <laughs> that's of course where you start with gender diversity first as a first step, and then you try to make them more internationally, and then you try to make them more open to LGBTQ and to inclusion and so on. So it's a stepwise approach sometimes, but I always see it as the big picture. Okay, yeah, that's a very good point. I totally agree that it's a stepwise procedure and. What I also find very cool is that women in aerospace, they're also open to men and everybody yes. else. That's also quite cool. Another question I have regarding the astronaut in is, so in addition to providing astronaut training, the astronaut in also does a lot of other trainings, like leadership trainings and other STEM trainings for women. Can you talk about these? Yeah, this was growing out of we have two companies, actually. We have the non-profit company, which has the goal to bring the first German woman into space and to support education and training for children and, that, and science. And then we have the astronaut in GmbH, which is a startup company that was growing out of that. We just finished our time in the incubator of the European Space Agency in Northern Germany, which was uh, very good. We were very much supported there. And we developed trainings for, especially empowerment trainings for women. We started with things like Astronauting for a Day, which is a personality training, but we also have a resilience training, we have communication training, and we have a career and leadership training, and we have present yourself training, where it's about uh, your personality and how to be on stage, how to present um, things. and. We started developing these trainings just before COVID-19 started. And we wanted to market them and then we were all in lockdown. So we had to switch to online trainings and we developed an online training series, which we call the Moonshot Sessions. The Moonshot is a big vision. It's like improving whatever you do by a, a big number. By yeah, And uh, so the Moonshot Sessions are, again, a leadership training for women. It's eight sessions and it's about uh, setting your goals. It's about how to achieve your goals. It's about the challenges you come across when you want to achieve your goals and how to overcome them. But it's all about, it's also about resilience. It's about fear. It's again about presenting yourself and your goals. It's about uh, conflict management, uh, but it's also about mindfulness and the soft factors that come with it. So it's a whole package that goes. I, over eight uh, sessions in, in a two-week sequence. 
and we're offering that to the non-space market now. And then the, our flagship product that we developed is the Mars uh, team experience training called Planet M. And this is what I mentioned before. It's a team training for up to 12 people. They play for a full day, a Mars mission. Four people will stay on the ground in the ground control center and eight people will go on Mars. Four of them outside in spacesuits working on the surface of Mars and four of them in the Mars habitat working as scientists and uh, Capcom and uh, yeah, medical there. And this is a fantastic team experience because you are in a totally different setting and we really set up a meeting room, a big meeting room with Mars floor and Mars walls and build all the infrastructure there. So that the team really feels like they are acting and working on Mars and you really get your head free. You come, you open your mind for new ideas. And we offer that also as a visionary training for people who work in design, for people who create new products or new things for innovation and innovation training so that people can do the Mars mission like in the morning and then have an innovation workshop in the afternoon and come in with a very fresh mind full of new ideas, new perspectives and new possibilities. Wow, that sounds fantastic. And I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, but do the participants require an engineering background to be able to participate in this? No, no, it's open for everybody. It's actually, again, we develop these trainings not for the space industry, but we develop them for the public industry, for people especially focus on women in leadership positions. Of course, from my background here, I have a, a, a big heart for women who are working as a single woman in male teams because I know how that is. I've been there for 30 years and done that and I can help them a lot, also coach them with my personal experience and my personal knowledge that I bring with me. But in principle, it's open for everyone. We're offering it to companies, not to private persons on the market. So it's open to companies to book that training for their leadership teams. Great. That sounds really fantastic. Thank you very much, Claudia. You've shared a lot of exciting stuff about Astronautin. And I'm really looking forward to the Project M, <laughs> to participating in it. And if young professionals or space enthusiasts and students want to reach out to you what's the best way to do our astronautin website which is uh, www no three times dot <laughs> 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 astronautin.net or our email address it is info at astronautin.net again okay that's great yeah thank you very much for your time today and hopefully we can meet in person sometime soon yeah, I hope so too. Thank you very much, Roshana. I really enjoyed that talk. <laughs>